Hey there, entrepreneur, and welcome to today's show. Before we jump in, I just want to give you a quick reminder. You know, this episode is dropping about, I don't know, middle of November-ish, right? So we are, you are either in queue for craziness, especially if you work in the retail space, or, you know, you are right on the cusp of the holiday season and potentially some stress that comes with that. And whereas we're coming off kind of a a challenging, I'll say here, I just want to, to take this moment to remind you to pause, right? It doesn't have to be anything too crazy, but just pause to make sure that you're taking a minute before you go through the hustle and the bustle and that you are taking control of how your day goes. And remember that you do have a choice when you go through this. So if your life starts to get a little extra busy um, at the tail end of Q4, remember that you have a choice and to take some deep breaths. And speaking of deep breaths, today's guest definitely had to take some throughout his situation. So we're jumping in with the incredible Marek Simlowski. Let's go. Ever found yourself teetering on the edge of throwing in the towel? You know, asking yourself questions like, is this supposed to be this hard? Or is it even possible to succeed at this entrepreneur thing? I completely get it because I built my successful businesses while juggling major health issues for my children and myself, debt piling up to my eyeballs and so much more. Want to know how the hell I succeeded and how you can too? Tune in to find out. Here we go. Hey there, entrepreneurs, and welcome to today's show. You are in for an exciting and interesting and educational and a whole lot more from this conversation. So let me welcome Marek Zemlowski to the show, who is a Polish-born entrepreneur and executive focused on online business and renewable energy and passionate about, and this is a key here, folks, emerging markets. He's co-founded numerous startups and is the best-selling author of a book called, which I have to say is like one of the best titles I've come across in a while, um, Chasing Black Unicorns, How Building the Amazon of Africa Put Me on Interpol's, wait for it, folks, Most Wanted List. So Marek, thank you so much for being with me here today. And thanks for the invite. Pleasure to be here. Uh, hi, Michelle. Hi, everyone listening, watching, and so on. <laughs> I love it. So let's let's jump in, right? So your journey to getting on Interpol's most wanted list started by you taking a leadership role with a startup in Nigeria, which I know you weren't you weren't too familiar with that market, or you know hadn't been there a ton. So can you please set the stage for our listeners on what you walked into when you took on that role, like the fifty thousand foot view? You know, it's emerging yeah. market politics, climate, all of that stuff. So set the stage for us. Yeah, story of my life in 60 seconds. Born and raised in post-communist <laughs> Poland. Didn't have much money. Uh, my parents were very you know, humble uh, in terms of their where they were coming from, a teacher and a soldier. Uh, but we had TV and I could watch MTV and I could watch CNN and, and Hollywood movies. So I had that dissonance between what I see outside my window in a small communist post-communist Poland in my small town and then what I could see uh, uh, on TV. So I always wanted to just run away and, and, and have some kind of an international adventure. I, I did it also while making money. So uh, I got myself into startups uh, because Poland then joined NATO and European Union. So I already had the passport and I could travel, not unlike my, my parents. And the moment I got the first chance to 
get hired by an international investment fund that would just send me anywhere. At that stage, I had no clue where they're going to send me. I was like, just, just take me on board. I'm, I'll do everything. I have nothing to lose. I want to I wanna taste the world. And uh, just by pure chance, it was Nigeria in my case. So there was, I was sent there as part of the early uh, management team or founders team, whatever you're going to call it, uh, and to, start, uh, to start their businesses there because this big investment fund wanted to build their own copy of Amazon. They could see how Amazon is successful in the US. They could see how Amazon is successful in China. And they were like, we've already done something like that in Europe. So let's, let's now go after the last Wild West uh, Africa. And that's how I started working for this big firm. And, uh, and really being a, a hired manager that would not only work for salary, but also for some shares just to keep me motivated and stay in that, uh, I mean, in the end, very challenging, dangerous market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so set, so tell us more about that part, because again, a lot of our listeners are in the States. And there's a lot yeah. of myths about that market. So what yeah. did it look like when you when you walked into it? Yeah, so um, uh, when they told me, yeah, we're actually going to Nigeria, and I was like, Nigeria what? Uh, <laughs> so my, my first source of data, Google, of course. So all I could read is uh, Nigeria is like, there's this Nigerian prince that wants your credit card, uh, and, 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 there's, <laughs> and there's Boko Haram, so a, a lot of terrorism. Not the best PR you could think of. But then at the same time, I knew that there were many mis misconceptions about Poland. Like people were asking me, can you guys still buy meat in the shops and so on because of that post-communist PR, right? Right. So I figured if there's so many misconceptions and outdated data about Poland, it might be the same about Nigeria. So I, I started some digging and then learned literature. And, and, and obviously I went there and I started traveling. And I realized that, well, first of all, Africa is not a country. It's a continent of 54 uh, uh, countries. Every country is really divided into hundreds of ethnic groups that have a longer history, sometimes than Europe itself. You know, they were just divided differently because of colonization later and lost their identity and so on. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a vast continent. I mean, you fly from west to east seven hours with a Boeing. Right. I don't know how far, how long you fly from west to east in the US, but uh, yeah. you can actually fit in China and Europe and US into Africa and you're still going to have free space. It's a much bigger continent than what the maps tell you because the maps are slightly uh, disproportionate in, in, in that sense. And then you really see that, yes, it's a very poor continent, but this is just part of the picture. There's no, there's no such thing as third world yet because even in rich countries, you have a very rich communities and you have very poor communities. And we read in the media or watch in the media obviously the the kids uh, with big bellies because that's what that's the what the ngos are pushing but once you land in you see that there's a middle class growing and there's also a, a large community of, of of rich of rich people as well and there are roads and there are highways and there's internet and there are banks and and obviously you can't sell your product to everyone because of so many poor people but there's already this growing middle class that you can, uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you can sell your services to, but also you hope, and that's what every long-term investor hopes in Africa, is that by growing the middle class, uh, you will also solve the uh, uh, poverty problems and so on. Like you, in, in Africa, especially, you can see the, the healthy aspect of capitalism, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the grassroots capitalism. You can see that there's a guy who used to have a shop on the street and now he's running a supermarket. Uh, you obviously see also the negative aspects of corporation, corruption, and so on. But that visible aspect of grassroots capitalism that 
brings nations out of poverty uh, was very visible for me because I could also see that in Poland in the 90s. So for me, Nigeria was like Poland 20 years ago, just the potential is 10 times the, the 10 times. It's like by an order of magnitude higher. So for me, it wasn't that crazy to see the long-term, uh, uh, long-term future, positive future of Nigeria or Africa, because I could see that on a micro scale in Poland that started right. as a very poor country. And then now is one of the strongest economies in, uh, in Europe. Obviously, it's hard to compare. There's so many differences. Maybe I am naive in that sense, but that naivety back then helped me. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes that level of naivety gets you into to the best situations, I think, because you, you, get, cur- because yeah. you get curious, right? Whereas yeah. I think when you're so focused on the like, well, we're the best because hi, I'm in the US. That's that's it tends to be sometimes the yeah. mentality that folks over here may have, which, you know, that's fine. But I think when you when you lack the curiosity, you don't get exposed to emerging yeah. markets. You don't have a chance to look at and watch something grow, which must have been fucking amazing for you to see. It's it's the most important thing which kept me in Africa now for almost 10 years because I, I moved there end of 2012, um, which is that, that you know, the things change almost in front of your eyes and, uh, and literally everything you do has a real effect on, on the community you're, you're, you're building with. And again, I don't want, this might sound cheesy, this might sound too poetic, I'm not trying to romanticize capitalism, but it's just so valuable. When I ran my business, we became a big company with a couple thousand of people, we ended up doing an IPO, uh, you know, New York Stock Exchange and so on. And no one had to ever ask me about CSR, because the fact of opening the business there and hiring, I don't know, 100 uh, IT developers and, and teaching them how to code, was a CSR in itself because right. if it wasn't for us investing in it, there was no other company that would do it. Uh, so uh, it, it's that additional level layer of, I, I'd say, satisfaction just because you are bringing some more real change. In Europe, if I'm in IT because I'm, I've been in IT for so, so, many, so many years in e-commerce, in online business, I would probably do an e-commerce number 200 in my own market. I would launch a mobile application number 5,000 and I would just compete for credit card credit card data of, of another millennial that tries to fill his time when he's <laughs> bored, right? Yeah. And 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 you're solving more real problems there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I just 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 yeah. that's just cool. That's just cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean the ripple effect, like you said, the real problems. And I and I did watch your TED talk about um about Africa and talking about that yes. middle class growth, um, yeah. which is always really interesting because you know, it's, it's underestimated. And I think yeah. you're, you're right. The trickle down effect um, is interesting, but it's when it starts to push upwards that people get pissed off, I think on some levels, right? Yeah. Do you agree with that? Um, Somewhat. Yeah. Could you, could you give me an example where, where this is? So, like, I mean, would, I think it's, yeah. you know, again, like we hear a lot about the one percenters, right? Yeah. But when the middle class starts to bump up against the one percenters and there's a potential I don't want to say threat because that's a big word, but there's a lot of trickle down. But how do you how do you view it as it goes upwards, like it bumps the ceiling between the classes? So that's a good point. So again, context. I come from Poland, where because of communism, I mean, now the Nazis kind of wiped out our intelligence, and then the communists from Russia basically took nationalized all the wealth. So for free, uh, sorry two generations back when I was, before I was born, 
Uh, for me, I was raised in a world when the director of a school or any organization was making as much money as, as a teacher. For me, we all had the same amount of money. Right, like we right. all had the same amount of savings, which is nothing, right? Right, right. So <laughs> for me, the, the concept of having generational wealth and that the wealth gap was just so crazy. And I got exposed to it, to be very honest, for the first time in Nigeria. And when I was like, how is that possible that there's this 1% that I'm meeting with people whose names are on the streets I travel on, right? right so I'm meeting right. this, this multi-generational wealth people. And then I would travel to India and I've seen something the same. And I would travel to Southeast Asia. And in the end, I've learned something more because I was such an ignorant when it comes to history. Uh, something more about the history of Western Europe and, and then North America and Latin America. And I've realized that this classism is actually everywhere, which is a problem when it comes to inclusion because again, without getting in too much into politics, um, part of keeping a nation wealth, wealthy is having access to cheap labor. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at yep. Dominican Republic, where I'm staying currently right now. The fact that their direct neighbor is Haiti, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. I see the value for Dominican Republic by having access to cheap labor. When I look at South Africa in, in, the, in the second part of 20th century, basically built its own racism system because apartheid was was racism constitutionalized i mean jim crow was nothing in compared to apartheid they basically created those small countries within south africa so the black community would be effectively a foreigner in their own country so that so to sum up the top one percent needs that uh, that uh, a poor uh, poor society but i think with the changes that are happening with the huge masses of more and more aware bottom 99% of what is happening, this is not sustainable anymore. Look at all those riots and lootings which erupted in LA in the 92 and then lately because of Black Lives Matter. Well, which I guess this is more or less connected. I don't want to get into that because I have not enough knowledge. I could see those riots suddenly becoming so big at such a big scale in a matter of hours. This is happening right now in South Africa as we speak. There's, there's a 5,000 military on the streets and there's already more than 20 shopping malls being burned down simply because South Africa you have a country of 60 million people where 5 million people are considered middle class and 55 million people are considered living below the poverty line again I'm generalizing but more or less yeah uh, you are already talking about numbers which cannot be contained the way it was contained in the middle ages right. so you need to increase the comfort of life for everyone otherwise the poor will eat the rich <laughs> well, right so, right especially with the equal on some level i don't want to say completely equal but the opportunity to gain knowledge around stuff i mean hello internet <laughs> you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. and just you know so many of the stories when you when you have google or you have whatever at your fingertips you know that that is kind of an argument that i i hear a lot is you know you you don't necessarily need to be stuck you are surrounded by your circumstances fine but you have all this knowledge now that maybe was kept from you to your point yeah. years and years ago before so you know in some levels if you are in that top echelon you know yeah. that's a pretty big threat on some levels and there's also a double edged sword when it comes to internet and social media you have that free access to yes to, to knowledge, and I guess you, you you can become yourself very educated in terms of how sometimes unfair the system is and how little chances of success you have if you are born into the wrong community. Right. Uh, 
but also like we're living in in a in a in an ecosystem of of news that really can feed off your rage and even yes. accelerate it. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, because you know nothing sells clicks more more than rage. So not only you're getting exposed to how the system works and maybe make you understand about the you know about sometimes how un, 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 unfair the system is, but also we're gonna get you furious very very fast and we're going to make your worst instincts control you now Uh, and and that's how riots uh, erupt yeah yeah i mean i i remember working when i was working in tech and just you know the level this was years ago but you know the level of data (laughs) and potential manipulation that you could see just from a marketing perspective and then you put that on steroids when it comes to leaders and countries and politics and all of that other stuff. And it's, you know, that can definitely be a double-edged sword. And I like the fact that you said that, you know, nothing sells clicks like, like anger and rage and those massive emotions. So that's a very, very, that itself could be a very interesting conversation. On yeah. Things. yeah. Um, There's a lot of things happening right now in the world and uh, they're not going to go away. No, no, they're not. Because I think, again, we're dealing, we're dealing with humans, humans and generations after generations of, you know, challenges, deep-seated challenges, we'll say, um, that aren't going to go away. And I was just speaking to somebody the other day about, um, you know, AI and all the, the rise up of that and, you know, somebody actually governing the emotional side of that and how humans get in the way and stuff when it comes to ego. But anyways, digressing <laughs> on a lot of that. So, Take us to how the hell you ended up on Interpol's most wanted list, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the, we have to finish that part of the story. So long story short, I was working for this big investment firm. Uh, we've launched uh, seven different ventures that we then later merged into one uh, that ended up uh, doing the IPO in the States. And at some point I was like, I love Africa. I love what's happening here. I'm going to stay in Nigeria. And, and this time I'm going to invest or uh, launch a business of my own. Uh, but I would love to have some local business partners who would maybe uh, guide me still uh, in, in what's happening uh, in the market. Because in the end, I'm a foreigner who just has been here for a couple of years. Uh, I think at that, that stage, I was only four years into, into my journey into Africa. And uh, something that is very usual, very, it happens quite often all over the world, is that Sometimes you just don't choose your business partners wisely. You maybe haven't done enough audit. Maybe you haven't got to know them properly. And what started as a pure communication issue about where to take the company. And uh, my business partner was a, was a very mature, close to a 60-year-old uh, seasoned entrepreneur who has spent most of his life in emerging markets like Nigeria. And I was this very cocky entrepreneur, 20, uh, 20 couple years or something, who just did this big success because of the IPO. And I thought that I can do everything. And, and I was an asshole as well. But what I underestimated is that when you have someone that you don't necessarily like and you're used to doing business, and I, I guess I apologize for everyone to say this just as a joke, the Nigerian way, the, the Russian way, the yeah. emerging markets way, uh, you will... I mean, bribing police is just another way to get rid of your uh, competition, whether internal or external. Let's just put it this way. And and in my particular case, uh, my business partner decided to bribe the Nigerian police to issue an arrest warrant on me. And then I got an offer. Listen, I don't want you in this business anymore. I want you to get out of my my company. I'm going to do this now. And uh, you're either now signing the papers and giving me back all your shares and you're getting the hell out of it. 
uh, or I'm going to put you to, into jail and you're going to stay there for as long as it's needed until you change your mind. <laughs> Basically, that was it. And, uh, and long story short, I was still cocky and still very stubborn and decided to fight him. Although I had back then absolutely no clue how much this is going to cost me. Uh, long story short, now I have to give you the context about Interpol because probably not too many people in the US know how, what is Interpol and how is suddenly Nigeria conflict yes, becomes an Interpol please. thing. Interpol is like Facebook for the police all over the world. It's a platform that every police all over the world, maybe besides North Korea uh, and a couple of other small, strange countries, uh, they, they all have access to it and they can all share whatever is happening in their country. So anyone, any police station in Nigeria will have access to internet, to this uh, Interpol, which is Facebook for police. They post this arrest warrant and suddenly every other police, whenever you travel around the world, uh, they know about it. Which, in, just like Facebook, in theory, it's a very great thing, right? right? right. Because you, want, you don't want someone to kill someone in Nigeria and then run away and have a normal life in Switzerland. Right. But just like Facebook and YouTube, there are sometimes problems when the scale is too high and people can post anything without any control. Like, let's say someone has posted naked photos of you, right? And, uh, and they're blackmailing you. Well, good luck going to YouTube and trying to get that person's IP or address uh, to be able to sue, sue them and so on. Uh, the bureaucracy is super, is very problematic and the systems are still a lot to work out. That's another story. So that's, uh, that's the problem with, with Interpol. It's so easy to put your name on Interpol, especially when you have influence in countries like Nigeria, especially in countries like Iraq, Turkey, uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, Interpol by definition treats an arrest warrant from Switzerland, Germany, the same way as Nigeria. Uh, I, just to bring an example, I think a couple months ago when Trump was still the president and I think they killed some generals in Iran, Iran issued an arrest warrant after Trump and they put it on the Interpol. It, it's the same mechanism, right? They just issued and it was immediately Interpol. Equal so, opportunity. <laughs> equal, equal opportunity. Equal opportunity arrest warrants. <laughs> exactly. So, so for a couple of days, Trump was technically a, a, a one of the most wanted fugitives in the world. And it happened to me. Like you could go to Interpol website and my name was next to guys from ISIS that, being, that have been chased by, by the FBI or whatever. And this is designed at really destroying you financially because everywhere I would travel, I would be stopped by the airport by default. It would take me days to explain myself, hey, this is this thing in Nigeria. There's, it's absolutely baseless because there was no evidence. There was no nothing. That information goes to banks. So all my credit scoring, all my credit lines, all my bank accounts are by default now uh, frozen. It's designed, that bureaucracy is designed at, at destroying you financially. But I was stubborn and... Um, I basically, because the story is getting too long, uh, decided to do the FBI way, the Hollywood way. Uh, so <laughs> I would go for meetings with that person uh, to negotiate with him saying, listen, let's do it the other way. You're really destroying my life. Uh, what, what, do, what else do you want from me? And so on. But I don't want to give you the company. So that person would become very comfortable and basically would admit to what he has done while I was recording him. And that uh, piece of evidence plus many, many other things, allowed me to win a case against Nigerian police in Nigeria federal court. So Nigeria is not that bad. You can still win cases in courts, even if there are some bad apples in the police. Yeah. And then I was able to appeal in the Interpol in France, because their headquarters is in France. It took two years, but they, in the end, they admitted that this shouldn't be published in the first place. 
And then I also had to defend my potential extradition request from Poland to Nigeria. Uh, and I also won this in, in, in Polish courts. So it all took two years and a lot of adventures in between. Uh, and because I always wanted to write a book, but this, this book was supposed to be about business in Africa because no one writes proper business book about Africa. You could right. only, you know, you read books about someone driving through the desert on his motorbike or or some Oxford professor analyze, analyzes the macroeconomics of Africa. But I wanted like a real business book, uh, which I always thought I'm going to write probably 20 years later. Uh, but this was such an important chapter of my life that also made the business much more interesting <laughs> because you ended up having a criminal story embedded in business right. that I've decided to do it uh, earlier. And also on the personal level, the, it was a huge motivation for me to uh, finish this whole case, that whole drama with a happy end because it required a lot of self-discipline. I had depression a couple of times. I ran out of money a couple of times because uh, the lawyer's costs were actually bigger than the whole money that I would, would, uh, would lose if I ended up agreeing for what the guy wanted from me. But that's another story. Right. Uh, that, that vision of being able to finish the drama with a happy end in order to write a book that has a happy end uh, was was extremely powerful motivation for me. Yeah, so I mean, that's number one. That's a lot. I'm not going to lie. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> talk about resilience, right? Um, so were you concerned or did you experience, I mean, this could be one and the same, any blowback, I guess, um, across the industries? Because, I mean, you saw the blowback when they put you on Interpol's, you know, list. Yeah. But after you kind of came out of that, I'm sure legally yeah. they didn't have much recourse, but... Did you feel any blowback once that was completed? Uh, you mean uh, like a damage on my my image and business and everything? Yeah, I mean, that as well as the relationships, as well as, I mean, you were dealing with a seasoned entrepreneur. Yeah. So I'm sure who had a foothold in a lot, <laughs> Yes. right? So whether it's through him or through something else, that type of blowback. Yes. Yeah, so I, I guess I have to be divided into stages. First, obviously, when the whole thing erupts, and my name gets into Interpol and so on, then short term, um, I, I got a huge blowback, uh, basically hit when it comes to my businesses. I couldn't travel anymore. My bank accounts are frozen. I, I'm, I'm stuck. And many people are like, I mean, I say that, hey, I'm a, I'm a victim here, but who will believe me? Like, just right. It's a PR crisis. It's a PR crisis yeah. on a lot of levels. PR crisis is big, yeah. yeah. Um, then... When I decided to go public, so I went to media saying, hey, look what's happening. This shouldn't be like this. I mean, there, there's a injustice happening. So what do you do when injustice is, is happening? Your natural reaction is like shout. Like that's what yeah, animals do. Like when someone you know, does something to you, shout. You want people to see. And I went to media and I, and I, and I, went, and I went very loud about what is happening. And um, the unexpected, uncalculated, uh, backlash and very painful for me happened from my industry itself because um, here I was this foreigner that came, I came to Nigeria made some money and now he's as it was quoted many times I'm just quoting someone cheating into his own nest because now I'm saying hey if you're a foreigner in Nigeria this is what can happen to you you can end up being on interpolis you can end up having your bank accounts frozen and being essentially wanted yeah. so i understand that many people from the industry nigerian entrepreneurs who were raising money from foreign investors probably 
got some problems. Therefore, mm -hmm. an investor may be back down. He said, no, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm got scared because of what happened because my case became so widely known. And, and I had, I got a lot of anger towards me for essentially in their minds, hating on Nigeria. I, in my mind, I was a whistleblower in their mind. I was this guy seeking attention, uh, trying to spin the story and, and basically feeding of bad Nigerian image in order to protect his case. He's most likely the bad guy, or he wanted me to be the bad guy because it was in their own personal interest. And, um, that was the most painful thing because those were people who I didn't know personally, but I know of them. I mean, the IT sector in Africa is not that big. Right. And, and for their personal interest, they would either stay quiet or even uh, attack me back for, for, for attacking uh, Nigeria in their, their mind. And unfortunately, indirectly, they were defending the real fraudsters. So that was very painful for me, I have to say. In the long term, I guess... Uh, good awakening uh, but if i did this again i would probably you see maybe this is not the, the right conclusion from it but i would probably think twice uh, whether i should be that vocal about what's happening to you because then you have to remember there are many people who would go after you yes. not not to defend the fraudsters but because they're also defending their own personal interest right right so right. That, that was that was actually very painful and and that hurt me a lot uh, in the long term, when the thing finally happened and the book came out and, and the Interpol dropped the charges and admitted the mistake and so on, the fact that I wrote a book allowed me to, and that's that honesty that I really wrote about many things in the book, not only putting myself in the best light, a lot of people from networks, from circles, I would never think of, I would have access to like CEOs of some big international companies. Uh, like there's the CEO of this, one of the biggest telcos in Africa that actually invited me for coffee. And he told me his stories that happened very similar to mine that he could never speak publicly about simply because he's still a very, very exposed right. uh, po uh, po uh, position. So in the end, the fact of what happened to me and that I turned into a book and thank God ended with a happy end, turned me into a more seasoned entrepreneur probably much less exposed to risk than I ever was. I'm very safe now in terms of yeah. what I want to, the risk I'm going after. Of course. Um, in the long term, it helped my image because I was able to, I guess, grow from it. If uh, and, and I was lucky at all, like that, that I had the money to fight, that I won those cases, that then I decided to write a book and I did not stop. I, once I decided, no, I will fight this, I didn't stop at any point of time. Uh, and I think that's what saved me, uh, that once I said, no, I'm going, I'm going to fight this the legal way, even if it's going to cost me more money than what they wanted from me in the short term, um, it, it was worth it. If I stopped anywhere in between, I would probably end up uh, much, much, much worse. Right. I mean, and you alluded to kind of this, this good awakening that you had as you went through it, right? As oftentimes yeah. adversity does help us grow. And you've also said a couple of times through this, like, that you were a jerk, like you were an asshole through a lot of that stuff. But I think that's part of youth as well. And I've heard a lot of entrepreneurs say that too. So, you know, what do you think that was the biggest learning coming through is kind of that awakening part of? Oh yeah. 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 Um, I really like Will Smith as an actor and sometimes his <laughs> videos uh, or, or social media are cheesy, but he had a couple of cool quotes. And, yeah, he uh, 
uh, I remember once he said like the best advice in life he ever got was running and reading. Uh, running because you set your mind to deal with adversity and reading because 99% of your problems someone already had and there's a high chance they wrote, book about, uh, wrote, wrote a book about it. And, uh, and then I remember one of his videos saying there's a difference between responsibility and blame. Uh, it's always good to take responsibility for, for everything. It's healthy, not necessarily the blame. So um, I totally take the responsibility for what happened to me in Nigeria. Because in the end, I was the cocky young guy that invited this old, maybe too dangerous business partner into your company. And then I pissed him off. I mean, how stupid is that, right? Right. right. Uh, <laughs> not going to lie. Pretty I, stupid. <laughs> yeah. I do not take the blame for him deciding to, to break the law to get what he wants. But I kind of led into this. And um, when, when I put the responsibility on me and myself, I, I'm not the victim anymore. Like I, if I was supposed to lie to myself that everything that happens to my, me in my life is my fault or nothing is my fault, I think I prefer to lie to myself that, most, that all of it is my fault because at least it gives me the, 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 the control over changing this, right? It, sometimes it's not my fault. Sometimes it's not my fault, but maybe two out of 10 times it's not my fault. But if at least eight times it's my fault, then I'll, I'll be able to change it because I lie to myself in the constructive way. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, and, uh, and to be completely blunt, if you had come on here and said to me like, oh, none of it's my fault, that guy sucks, I would probably called you out and kicked you off the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, it's, it's because like there's this, always, right? you know, I'm a big fan of saying like, there's, there's um, three sides to everything, right? Like yours, mine, and the truth. And a lot of the stuff gets kind of mixed up between yeah. the people and ego gets involved and a lot of different things happen. So, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to hear kind of that, that you had that awakening and that you're still, I'm, I'm assuming that you're still learning when you look back and that you still will be, you know, 10 years. I hope from I now, will never stop. Back. Yeah. Right. I hope I will never stop learning. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So tell us what you're, what are you up to today? I mean, you're off the Interpol most wanted list. You're living, living a fantastic life with your, your really super cute pets in the Dominican Republic. So uh, tell us what you're up to today, business, personal, anything you want to share with us? Yeah, I, I moved to Dominican Republic during lockdown uh, and it uh, doesn't look like it's going away and there are big problems happening right now in South Africa. Right. Uh, so why Dominican Republic? Because my, my girlfriend comes from here. So we had, we had a house. My plan is to come back. Uh, the question is why? Uh, well, now there's military on the streets in South Africa and there are no vaccines. And uh, so probably I'm still going to stay for a couple more months, but I don't complain. I'm, I'm really blessed to be here. Um, when the book happened, so the book, which I released around two years ago, uh, ended up being pretty successful, I, I must say. We, we, we published in, in English. Now it's uh, coming out also in Spanish. Uh, and other languages because the, the original one was in Polish. That was like a year of my life, year and a half when I was staycationing, or like half vacation. I was still recharging my batteries, not being ready to do business. Uh, and uh, the book promotion was a way for me to mentally also close the chapter of my life and then right. recharge my batteries. Yeah. And then I realized, I think it's time for a new adventure for me. So one of the realizations uh, that I had is that, uh, I mean, if you want to build something big, you have to stick to, to one business at least for 10 years. So I gave myself this, and I would always switch business every three, four years. Sometimes it was a smaller success, bigger. Sometimes it was just a bankruptcy, like, like it happens sometimes. But if you want some, to build something big, stick to, stick to 10 years. So I decided to really get myself out of comfort zone. So I changed sector. I decided to, to focus on uh, solar solar uh, solar. 
industry. I really to change ge geography. So not only Africa, that was nine, almost 10 years of my life, but now solar is mainly growing in Western Europe and the United States because mm -hmm. of the new regulations happening. I mean, obviously solar isn't in Africa because there's no other source of power, but not everyone can afford it yet. So it, it happens, it, 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 it's not there yet. Uh, so geographically, it's also a, a, a out of comfort zone for me. We're actually opening offices now in Austin and uh, Miami, nice. uh, and, uh, so, and and then and then at least ten years. So getting out of the comfort zone in terms of how long I want to stick to it until I build something big, geographical change, and sector change. All my life, I've been dealing with IT, with e-commerce, with finance, basically products that you cannot touch. Now I'm producing and installing something that is literally on top of my clients' heads. So because I'm also getting old, I'm 35 now, <laughs> uh, I guess that that refreshment uh, and, uh, and, and motivation to learn something new, I also hope keeps you uh, younger, longer. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy with, with, with where I am right now. And, uh, and again, if, if, if I was to leave through Nigeria drama again, if someone told me like, do you want to start again, all over again, but my memory would be erased, uh, I don't think I would go for this because I'm really happy where I am and I understand that I am where I am because of everything positive and negative that happened to me. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm going to put a dot here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for the segue. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think what you said is, is spot on and I hear it. I hear it over and over again from just people from all walks of life is that there's, you know, you, you fill your tool belt or your toolbox with whatever tools that you learn from good, bad, ugly situations. And then you keep moving forward. And it sounds like writing the book was quite cathartic for you, which is also a good thing and a way to grieve and shut it and shut that down. Right. That chapter. Um, this is the single most painful exercise of my life. <laughs> I, I don't think I will ever give a birth to a child, but I'd say <laughs> there's this and there's writing a book. Um, it helped me so much on so many levels. Uh, mentally, it was a psychotherapy in itself. Right. Uh, the, the, the discipline I had to get myself into and the skills I had to acquire mm -hmm. into write this book, I am using now this every day. I mean, right. I'm, I'm, I'm writing better emails, messages to my employees, staff, and so on. Uh, the, the ability to put your thoughts into words uh, on paper or in front of your screen monitor without pain, <laughs> just creating <laughs> just that happens. painless channel, yes, is, is, is a valuable skill in life. Um, so writing anything, because, you know, I, I've, I've written so much and probably the book is like 20% of all I've written, but that 80% that is, was garbage brought me to that 20% that stayed uh, is extremely valuable uh, skill. And even if you're not planning to publish anything, just write. I think keeping the ability to write longer thoughts, uh, structure your thoughts into coherent sentences <laughs> yeah. is a very valuable thing in life. Yeah. I mean, just from the, the ability to move things out of your mind and get them out and clear them out, but you're exactly right as a leader, as anyone like that, the ability to be succinct and to deliver it in a manner that is actually yeah. heard or read rather, um, is extremely important for any, anyone <laughs> entrepreneur yeah. or not, yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Well, you've left us with a lot to think about. And folks, this is just, this is like barely grazing the surface on what's in the book, folks, let me just say. Um, so you definitely want to check that out. But, you know, tell people where they, um, they, they can find you if they'd like to learn some more. Yeah, my name is my website address, which was the, the worst decision of my life, uh, looking at how you pronounce my name. But uh, the website also operates under the address of the book, which is easy to remember, chasingblackunicorns.com, just like the book, chasingblackunicorns.com. And this is like a one-stop shop for uh, all my activity business-wise. You can also read about my charity, which we didn't get to mention. All the money from the book sales goes to the charity. We, we have a school in Nigeria, which we operate, um, support. And now the second one will be in Dominican Republic as well. And, uh, and the book information and, and blog and social media, everything. All Everyone has to have a website now. Yeah, yeah. All, all, the, the, all the cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for plugging the charity because we did not speak about that. But yes, folks, a lot of the proceeds are going to some wonderful things. So you'll want to check that out as well. And I will link all of this in case Thanks anybody so is intimidated about spelling your name or cannot remember the name of the book. You will find it in the notes for this. And, you know, Marek, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Michelle, for letting me share my story with your audience. So I actually read the entire book, Chasing Black Unicorns. And, you know, to, to hear the voice of Marek in the book versus Marek right now, you can definitely tell there was some sort of transformation that, that happened throughout that process. I mean, he's the first one who admits like, no, I was cocky and I didn't know, you know, what I didn't know. And I think that's the beauty of his story is that none of us do, none of us know what we're doing when we start off sometimes in entrepreneurship or just in life in general. Right. And I think it's, it's okay to admit that you didn't know what the fuck you were doing but now you know better, right? It's the quote, you know, when you know better, you do better. So I think that is just great wisdom in itself, apart from all the other wisdom that he imparted to us during this episode. And on next week's episode, I am welcoming the wonderful Amber Kelleher Andrews. Now, Amber is the CEO of Kelleher International, which is now the number one matchmaking service, I believe globally which is makes for a really interesting conversation, especially because it's a family run business, right? So we're going to learn all about how she got into that, how she stayed in it and all of kind of the little dynamics behind that. So you don't want to miss it. And as always, if you love this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, download, follow, rate, and review. And, you know, tell a friend because who couldn't use a little more resilience in their life, right? See you later. 